The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. Today's guest, Indra Nooyi, enjoys a rare distinction. Her name is pretty much synonymous with that of her former company, PepsiCo. She spent 24 years there, 12 of those as chairman and CEO. When Indra stepped into that role, she became the first woman of color and immigrant to lead a Fortune 50 company. Indra became famous during her tenure at PepsiCo for making bold, transformational, and sometimes controversial decisions. Pepsi's brands were known among consumers for sugar, salt, and easy snacking. Indra insisted they stay delicious, but also wanted the company focused on reducing the health and environmental impacts of its products. That's not an easy balance, but employees rallied behind her. By the time Indra stepped down, the company was worth $57 billion more than when she started as CEO. Now Indra Nooyi has come out with a new book, My Life in Full. In the book, she calls on business and government leaders to make serious changes to family leave and to work flexibility policies. She calls this a moonshot. Her book is a tour through her life and her career. She sheds light on her corporate climb, and she highlights how intense her efforts were to keep her work and family lives strong and separate. Effort is a theme throughout the book. Indra has an almost superhuman drive to excel. You see it on every single page. So to kick us off, I asked her about that drive, where it comes from, and about how her mentors helped her to shape it and steer it. Here's our conversation. While writing the book, I realized I worked incredibly hard, harder than anybody's ever worked in the jobs that they've done, at least ones that I've observed. Funnily enough, when I was working, I assumed that that's what people needed to do to keep their jobs. Because remember, I was an immigrant, a person of color, a woman, and I always felt I was in a hole and I had to dig myself out of it. Don't ask me why, that's how I felt. So I worked extra, extra, extra hard to make myself be seen, heard, and counted in the halls of power. So I assumed that's how I had to work. In retrospect, it feels like a superhuman effort. So that was one side of me. I was just wired that way based on my background and the fact that I was first amongst many to come into the boardroom, but I was one of the earliest to come, as a woman to come into the boardroom. So I worked very, very hard. Um, for people today, um, it's not what they do and what the company does. I think today we have more support structures to help people. I think we have more opportunities for mentors and coaches to develop people and give them feedback. Those days, corporations are more of a sink or swim culture. And especially for women coming to the workforce and being among the first, there weren't other women you could look up to. There weren't other women as role models or peers that you could learn from. So you had to learn from the men and hope that one of them stepped up to be a mentor. In my case, I was very, very lucky. Lots of people stepped up and said, I want to mentor her because I see something in her that says that she's, she could be successful if molded the right way. So a lot of people stepped up to mentor me and I am a product of their mentorship. So you started that off by saying that by coming to the US, you felt like you had something to prove. And in the book, there's a great line where you say, I still have that fear 
and immigrants fear that presses me to try to do well and to belong. Do you think that if you had stayed in India on the path that you were on, working for a textile company, working for Johnson & Johnson, that you might not have reached the top of the business sphere in India as well? Would your drive have been different had you not moved to the US or moved to another country? I don't know. And another country is not in the cards, it's just the United States. Because when I was growing up in India, the belief was always that the US was the seat of innovation, the seat of entrepreneurship. The, you know, all the advanced cultural trends came from the US, music, the arts. So US was considered as a land of hope and dreams and everything in between. And so it was aspirational to come to the US. And that's what attracted me to the US. Could I have been successful in India? Maybe, I don't know. There weren't any women in positions of power in India unless they inherited it from their families. So if I had worked hard, maybe I could have ascended to a leadership position there. I don't know. I do know that after I came to the US, even though I looked different, even though I talked different, people took me at face value for what I could bring to the job and they helped me move ahead. So. I view this country as one of the greatest meritocracies around. When you write that line about the immigrants' fear, you were writing in present tense. You say, I still have that fear. It surprised me, and I think it would probably shock a lot of people on this call to hear that you have any fear, that there is anything that you feel like you are still living up to. Is that still part of, of who you are, that immigrant fear? Yeah, I think so, because at the end of the day, you know, I came to the U.S., made the U.S. my, my home, but I always want my family back in India to say, we are proud of what she did in the US and how she gave back to the country. I want India to say, she did India proud. She didn't let India down by doing anything wrong. And I want the US to feel like somebody like me who did not flee persecution, did not flee problems, but came to the US willingly with lots of hopes and dreams in my suitcase, also contributed to the United States. And I feel like I have these responsibilities in my head, even though I've been here for 42 years and this is my home, I still feel like I owe the U.S. a huge debt of gratitude and I want to make sure that I'm giving back all the time. I don't know what propels me to do that. That's what I feel. In the book, you were calling for a moonshot. You want the U.S. to rethink family leave and support for families and support for women in particular. Can you talk a little bit about what you are hoping to achieve here? So I'm going to come at this whole issue as an economist, because I think as a country, we are moving more and more to a knowledge economy, and we're going to be differentiated and going to be successful because we have the best and brightest talent. And it shouldn't matter what the background of the talent is, we have the best and brightest people that we can deploy against this huge knowledge economy that's growing so fast. Let me start with that as the base knowledge. From that, let me talk about the talent pool that we have. Women are half the population. They get 70% of the valedictorians in high schools. They are graduating from college at 10 points higher rates than men. Uh, they're getting all the top grades. In STEM disciplines in the top schools, they have one whole point of GPA more than the men. At MIT, they are 47% of the graduates. At Caltech, Georgia Tech, some of the big engineering schools, they're 30, 35% of the graduates. I'm looking at this and saying, we have an incredible emerging market opportunity within our country, which is women. How do we tap into this incredible talent pool, bring them into the paid workforce and let them fly, allow them to contribute to the economy so the economy can grow and we can really 
do it with the people we have here. We have such a fantastic labor force. And so I come at it strictly from an economist perspective to say, all the studies show GDP grows when we can bring more women into the workforce and keep them rather than bring them in and lose them. So the big question is why do we lose them? We lose them for two reasons. One, we lose them because the conditions inside companies and entities that employ them are not conducive to their success. Either there's too much unconscious bias, there's no pay parity, there are those headwinds they face. But more importantly, if women choose to also have families, they have to struggle with balancing family and work. The question is, it's a simple solution. With COVID, we've learned how to deploy technology tools to work flexibly and remotely, which is great. If we can now add paid leave to support people who have children, and then set up a childcare network so that we can have a support structure for families to support child rearing while people have to go to work or do other things. I think we can take away all the stresses on young family builders, especially women, and make families a source of strength. You know, I call it a moonshot, but it's a moonshot that's doable, a moonshot that's achievable if we only put our hearts and minds to it. But the fact of the matter is, if we don't do it, we are taking this incredible talent pool and basically telling them, we don't care about all the stresses and strains you go through. Yeah, we'd like you to come into the workforce, but if you don't come into the workforce and quit, tough luck. It's a loss to the country. It's a loss to women who need economic freedom. And it's a loss for the world at large because this is happening across the world. The original moonshot was a government approach. You talk about what we can do here. This is a corporate employee and government approach that you're talking about. As someone who sits on so many boards, who interacts with people at the very top of the professional world, what do you hear from peers and from these corporate entities that are stopping them from seeing exactly what you're laying out, the economic reason to embrace leave and uh, family care and child care? Why are companies doing it? You know, at PepsiCo, we did do a lot of these things. We had on-site, near-site childcare. We had flexible work hours. We gave paid maternity and paternity leave. So we put in place a lot of these programs. I think in many companies, they're doing it. I'm talking to more and more companies who are looking at putting in these programs or have already put in these programs. But I think it can't be the odd company here and there. It's got to be more systematic across companies, across government across small and medium-sized enterprises, across every aspect of society. So I don't have an answer as to who should do it, Dan, because I'm a strategist who can identify problems and say, we need to address it. I think now the policy people have to come together and say, how do we structure it? How do we pay for it? Who pays for it? And I think this is where we have to bring in people from government, from companies, every aspect of society, to talk about how to make this happen. The reason it becomes more complex these days is because in the past, people just left the home, went to the office. So you could think about childcare in the community or childcare at the office. But now with hybrid working, with flexible working hours, you need childcare close to communities because people are going to be working flexibly from home. Maybe childcare attached to co-working spaces. So in many ways, the structure of care, as, we think, as we're talking about now, is also linked to the future of work. But it's important that as we think about future of work, we think about nurturing and supporting families, allowing women to juggle work and family. 
how do we make that central to the future of work conversations? To me, that needs to happen. And it's not happening to the extent I'd like to see it happen. Even all the future of work studies that are being done do not incorporate families and women into the center of the conversation. So I think a critical mass of voices speaking up on this is badly needed. How can we help women after maternity leave in particular? I think really you've got to give them enough time to recover from the birth of the child and make sure they can come back to work after that. Because in many ways, having a child is also a service to the country. So you've got to you know, ease the path for them to come back to the country, but they are to, the, to the job. But then if you give them flexible working conditions or and hybrid working conditions and care support structure, I think between the three, paid leave, flexibility and uh, hybrid or uh, you know, remote working, and um, childcare support, I think you can make this equation of having a child and coming back to work actually happen. Because think of it, if you have a, a partner, between a partner and you, you can decide who goes to work in an office one day, a few days in a week, and the other person goes the other days in a week. And in between, you guys manage with the child at home. I wish I had those facilities when I was having a kid because no technology, no flexibility. So we couldn't communicate with the kids and we had to uh, always be in the office and travel. Today, you can travel via Zoom or Teams or Stream, whatever you want to use. Talk to people on FaceTime, you can text, you can keep in touch with your kids all the time. So I think our world is different now. And I think uh, it's going to be even better from a technology perspective in the next three years. I think what we have to do is to say, how do we make it all work for families and for women? I think that's what is, should be the crux of the conversation. Yeah, you know, it's so funny while reading your book, it, it felt to me almost like when you watch movies now, when you see people in rooms together and you're like, wait, should that many people be in a room together? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, reading your book, there were so often you would talk about meetings and you were flying to, you'd fly to Moscow to meet with the team. It's like, couldn't we just do that on, you know, on Teams or on Zoom? But there, there was so much now that can be done by technology rather than having to be away from the family or not being you able bet. to talk to the family. You were so disconnected during your rise and that's you no longer the case. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll hear from Indra on pay equity, on how COVID changed business rules, and for the first time in This Is Working History, we're going to do a lightning round. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back. In her book, Inra writes about something that happened to her a lot, and it kept surprising me as I was reading. She would get more responsibility, but not more compensation. In a few instances, she would get a job on top of her existing job. 
So I wanted to get her advice on pay and pay raises. Whose responsibility is it to ask for that pay increase? Is it up to the worker? Is that something the HR org should be doing? Should the managers be keeping a close eye on this? Here's Indra's take. You know, Dan, this, this is one area where I let people down because I never asked to be paid more. I never asked for a raise. I never asked for a promotion. My husband and I always talked about it and said, this is still more money than we've ever seen in our life. And let's just keep working. Uh, why go fight for more money? And we made a decision that we would never ask for more money or ask for a promotion. Both of us followed that rule. And so I think that although I said, hey, I just doubled my job responsibility and uh, you would expect that you get a pay raise when you didn't get it, you go, oh, forget it, who cares? And you just went on. Had I asked for it, maybe I'd have done some benefit for the cause of women. I don't know. But when Steve Reinerman became CEO, he said, you know, I'm going to adjust your pay, your stock options, everything, because you didn't get as many special grants as people before you did. So again, think of the role of the mentor. Steve Reinerman steps up and says, I want to make sure this person gets rewarded, commensurate with the job she's doing, commensurate with the responsibility she has. He gave me a big raise, a big bump up in options. So again, did I miss out on some years of raise and options? Yeah, but to be honest, I don't care because uh, I have enough money and uh, I don't think that uh, I, I regret not getting that money for the first six years. Hmm. In today's terms, however, I think it's wrong if people don't notice that for the same job, women and get, men get paid the same. Why should they get paid differently? Why should women get paid less in most cases? Uh, and I think... HR departments have to be held accountable and CEOs have to be held accountable. And rather than publish big scorecards in the public domain, within boards of directors, these conversations need to happen. And we have to make sure that they talk about pay equity, talk about diversity and inclusion, and all of those matters with the organization health scores inside the boardroom. Because I think it's premature to publish things which could be interpreted every which way without having the real conversations within the company for a few years so that you can actually make the required changes that are needed to get to excellent pay parity and work on diversity and inclusion. Sorry, Andrew, you're saying that you think that publishing something will take away from these companies' ability to meet that pay parity? What is the downside to having the transparency about where you are? So let me give you one example. You know, there was a requirement to publish the CEO's salary versus the median salary of the employee or something like that. Remember that? Yeah, sure. So it said um, Google was, I'm just going to pick a number, not even true, but I'm just going to pick a number, 150 times. PepsiCo was 600 times, something vastly different. Is there any comparability? The answer is no, because the Google median pay is of a tech worker. The PepsiCo median pay is that of a factory worker. Completely different. But to the average person looking at these numbers, you go, oh my God, the PepsiCo CEO is overpaid versus a Google CEO. Not that the Google CEO is underpaid, but the PepsiCo CEO is vastly overpaid. Or if you're a global company, the median salary is much lower because it's a different currency. So all of these are subject to interpretation. I think those statistics should be developed. Boards should review it. Company management should scrutinize it uh, and then decide how best to address this issue in the company. I'll give you another example when it comes to pay equity. If somebody has been in a job for six or seven years and has got tremendous uh, you know, seniority and tenure in the job and is an expert at the job and gets paid a hundred bucks, 
and somebody who's newly promoted to the job gets paid 95, the external scorecard would say, and if the second person is a woman, the woman gets paid 5% less. Not true. If you tenure adjust the whole thing, it's the right number. That person will grow into the job fast. But you can't put in all these caveats when you report it outside. So I like external scorecards, but I, I'm really, I am nervous about how it gets interpreted. COVID has changed a lot of the rules. And I would love your take on how you have seen the change in what's required of leaders now. You know, so, Some of the stats that we are seeing are the flexibility has become the most important factor among job seekers right now. They want it more than pay. They want it more than new opportunities. Mm -hmm. Flexibility is the most in-demand requirement for anyone looking for a job. And, and that cuts across all industries. Mm -hmm. We've also seen the rise of in these last two years, especially of the employee voice, of employees making demands, of expecting leaders to weigh in on tough societal issues and of taking hard stands. So as someone who spends a lot of time watching how business operates, I'm curious what you, what kind of advice you would give to leaders today about how they need to lead in the new world. Look, leaders today have it tough because they've come through the pandemic. We've never had to manage through a pandemic. We shut businesses down, shut many offices down. And people are ha having to think about what happens to my office structures? Are people going to work out of home? Are they going to come into the office? What is the corporate culture? How do I create a corporate culture and nurture it? Uh, how do I help people develop soft skills? How do you even promote and develop people? All of these questions about what is the core of the corporation is going to be is being called into question. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, business models got challenged. Supply chains. You know, how do you think about? cybersecurity, everything is being challenged as far as today's leaders are concerned. When it comes to social issues, coming out of the pandemic and before that with George Floyd, et cetera, clearly there are more social issues today than there were when I was CEO. We had our share, don't get me wrong. And what I observed when I was CEO was whatever position you take, one third of the people are on your side, yeah. one third of people are against you, and a third are quiet. So either you can say two-thirds are for you or two-thirds are against you. So you have to be very, very careful as a CEO to determine what to wade into and what not to. Because whatever you do, you're going to be criticized. So keep looking at your value statement and saying, what aspects of my value statement do I have to live up to? And then decide whether you want to wade into a social issue or not. The rest of them, leave it to the employees to deal with it in their personal time. You as a CEO don't have to put out a statement. Now, again, I want to say something. It's easy for me to say it as an ex-retired CEO. When you're in the hot seat, the pressures you face are very different. You get sometimes tens of thousands of emails if you're silent. And you get tens of thousands of emails if you say something. So at that point, you've got to weigh the positives and the negatives of the messages you're getting and decide what's the best line of action for you as a CEO. These are not easy times. No, and I guess that is not surprising, as you say in the book, that CEOs last typically around five years. It must be a, a incredibly trying to try to figure all that out, in addition to keep the business running and growing. All right, we're going to get into a lightning round of questions. Indra, we have never done this before on This Is Working. This is a first. Okay. Um, so if we can just keep these short, but these are hard questions. So let's see if we can pull this off. How do you find the right mentor for yourself? Mentors pick you, you don't pick them. They pick you because they see something in you that they want to hitch their wagon to. What would be your advice for youngsters who are early in their career path or recent graduates? Focus on the job you're doing. Don't focus on the next few jobs. 
understand the company's politics, but don't play in the politics and put your hand up for the toughest assignments. That's when you'll get noticed. Oh my God, you're so good at this. All right. What advice would you have for single mothers who are trying to balance life as a sole parent and elevating her career? Uh, build a support structure around you. If it's not your family, your neighbors, your friends, your community, without a support structure, it's not easy to do, you know, to really pull off this juggling act and move into a neighborhood where there's very good childcare. And as much as possible, work for a company that values you and the fact that you're a single parent and is willing to let you work flexibly. All right. We'll do two more here. What are your thoughts on working long hours and trying to prove yourself at a company for future promotion versus finding work-life balance? It's a personal choice. If you're totally taken with the job and you want to put in the hours because you're enamored with what you're learning and you want to keep doing it, do it. If you believe you want real balance and you want to juggle work and family in a much more sensible way than I did, then you know make the trade-offs. And I say sensible way than I did because I got caught up in my work. I loved my job. I loved my family. So I didn't do things that, you know, were leisurely for me. I focused on the job. I focused on the family. All right. Last question comes from me. You talk in the book about the rock band you were in as a kid (laughs) called the Log Rhythms. By the way, genius name. Um, (laughs) Do you still play the guitar? I have. I own a lot of guitars, which I didn't at that time. But I just put them up on a wall in my office because... I let my nails grow and vanity takes the better of me these days, Dad. One day I'll cut off my nails and go develop the calluses to go back to playing guitar. That was Indra Nooyi, the former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. If the log rhythms ever reunite, I will be in the front row of that concert. Her new book, My Life in Full, is out now. Indra has put so much thought into the way that her professional life and family work together, and it wasn't always harmonious. She's really open about that. Her vision, though, for bringing harmony to people's work and family requires the buy-in of government and big business and, of course, the workforce. I would love to understand from where you sit and where you work, do you think this is realistic? What would work for you? Are there policies that she's proposing that you think sound right? Are there ones that you would propose? Let me know over on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. As always, to get more news and insights on our changing world, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Please share this podcast episode with a friend and be sure to review it. Your reviews really do help us find new listeners. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.